Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. We would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at 9.15 or 10.45 a.m. at our new location at 5103 Pegasus Court. To learn more about what Sunday mornings at Collective look like, please head to mycollective.church and click on what to expect. There are going to be a lot of great things at Collective this summer as Maryland opens up, so stay tuned for upcoming events and announcements as we continue to try to make an impact in our city. Now here's Sunday's message. Happy Father's Day. Uh, Just like Mother's Day, we know that today brings a full range of emotions for many people. Uh, I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine on Wednesday, and he reminded me that this Father's Day was the first since his dad passed, and he wasn't quite sure how it would feel. And a lot of you understand what that's like. Father's Day comes with the joy of being a father, the sorrow of losing a father, the anger of having an absent or abusive father, and the desire to be a father one day. And so if you are in that place, we see you, um, specifically men, um, we see you on this day. We know that today can be wonderful and hard at the same time, and that's completely okay. Um, We're praying for you and with you today as you figure out what Father's Day looks like right now. In 2013, Time Magazine shared the 100 most influential people of all time. Uh, And the top 10 included Thomas Jefferson, Alexander the Great, Aristotle, Hitler, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Shakespeare, Muhammad, Napoleon. And the number one most influential person was... Jesus, right? And when the list came out, it wasn't really anything new. It was important that it came from Time Magazine. But for decades, Jesus has been labeled as the most influential, most impactful person in the history of the world. And these lists have been created by historians and economists and writers and artists and theologians, and even through computer programs and algorithms that study the internet. It's hard to deny the influence that Jesus has had on the world. Even if you don't follow Jesus, even if you aren't sure about the spiritual parts of Jesus, even if you just think that Jesus is a great teacher, you can probably recognize his impact. Today, as we continue our series called Foundations, we're going to talk about Jesus. And I know that sounds kind of funny because we talk about Jesus every week at Collective, which makes sense because Jesus is the reason why we do church But today, we're going to focus on two foundational things about him. We're going to focus on on who Jesus is and what he did for us. And we're going to look at the two most important moments in Jesus' life. And honestly, I believe that these are the two most important moments in human history. The moment that Jesus died on a cross and the moment that he came back to life. And while there are many other things that I could share about Jesus, these truly are the foundation of why he is the most impactful person in the history of the world. But before we get to that, I think it's important to call out some of the non-foundational images of Jesus that exist. And so check this one out. Uh, This is Touchdown Jesus at the University of Notre Dame. He overlooks their football stadium, and if you know anything about football, he kind of like cheers them on a little bit. It's a little, it's a little weird. Um, no offense to any of you that are Notre Dame fans, but I'm not sure Jesus likes your team. 
if you did, you probably would have won a national championship in the last 33 years. Uh, it's okay. Hey, it's okay. Uh, Jesus clearly hates the Orioles as well, and I get it. Um, if any of you watched the game yesterday, we blew the lead in the ninth inning. It was like, what a good Father's Day gift. We're going to win. And then we lost by a lot because Jesus clearly hates Baltimore. Uh, he loves Frederick, though, so it's okay. Um, okay, so how about this one? Uh, this isn't Jesus. <laughs> Some of you think it is. It's not. Uh, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars, played by Ewan McGregor. Um, but a few years ago, this picture started to go around social media because it somehow started to end up in the homes of people who literally thought it was Jesus. So it's not. Um, Jesus does not have a series coming out on Disney Plus soon. Uh, again, Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, now, here's something that I found this week that currently fuels my nightmares. This is a real statue of Jesus. Um, ignoring the fact that his arms are way too short for his body, this Jesus is ripped, okay? This version of Jesus didn't need an angel to roll away the stone that covered the tomb. He did it himself. Uh, this Jesus doesn't skip leg day, and this Jesus will pump you up. Also, I'm very scared of this Jesus. Okay, so how about this one? Uh, this is plush Jesus. So this is real. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, I bought this as a joke about a year ago. Um, when things started to open back up, I was the only one in our office. And so I would bring him to the office and just mess with my staff. And so I'd hide him in closets and in their seats. Uh, so when we moved here, we left it as a gift to the company that we shared an office with. And somehow Jesus made his way back to us. Um, he's easily 6'2". I'm about six feet tall, maybe 6'1". Um, his eyes are very piercing uh, to the point of being a little bit creepy. Um, he is way too white to be Jesus. And we put a collective shirt on him because he had a robe. It's just a little bit much. Um, also, I'm giving him away today. So someone please take him away from us. Uh, we don't need him here. He freaks people out all day long. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for that. Um, but if you ever wanted a six foot two white Jesus in your house, he's right there. Okay, so let's talk about real Jesus, okay? Not, not the versions that we've seen online, not the versions that we've kind of caricatured throughout time, the real Jesus. Nearly all scholars agree that Jesus existed, right? This is, really isn't a fact that's been refuted. In fact, we learned last week that even non-Christian historians during Jesus' time have corroborated many of the details of his life. And so what that means is that this is not a fairy tale, Right? This, Jesus is not make-believe. Jesus was very real. And everything you need to know about who Jesus is and what he has done for us can be seen in his last words. In the final few things that Jesus said while he was dying on a cross 2,000 years ago. But how did Jesus end up on a cross? So Jesus' life is shared in a group of books called the Gospels. They're the biographies of Jesus found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they kick off the New Testament of the Bible. Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary. Uh, and I know that's a sticking point for some people, and I know a lot of people think it's hard to believe, but uh, we can legitimately use science right now to help people, even virgins, have children. So I don't think it's as hard to believe as many people want it to be. Um, also, if God can bring Jesus back from the dead, surely he can have a virgin give birth. And I know that's simplifying it too much, but we don't have time to really get into it. Those are just a few thoughts on that topic. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, this was a podunk town of about 400 people, and its name means house of bread. This has nothing to do with the sermon today, but when I was doing research, I, I didn't even know that. And I was like, I'm going to tell everybody that Bethlehem means house of bread. You would think it means house of ham. It doesn't. Uh, bread, for some reason. Um, and Jesus was born in a cave, 
right? We, we say it's a manger, but it's actually a cave. It was full of animals because there was no room in the city for them. And what this actually means is that Joseph's family shut them out because of the whole virgin birth situation. Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th, I'm sorry. Um, this date was chosen as a day that, uh, to celebrate Jesus' birth as an alternative to many of the pagan festivals that were happening at this time. Most scholars believe that Jesus was probably born in fall based on historical and cultural evidence in the Bible. Jesus got his name from an angel. When the angel told Mary that she would give birth to the savior of the world, he said, you are to call him Jesus, which he did, because it would have been really uncomfortable if she didn't. Uh, and Jesus was a very common first century name. It actually comes from the name Yeshua, which is an abbreviated version of Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves. Right? This was foreshadowing of who Jesus was. Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. Uh, in the first century, people didn't actually have last names. People identified others by referencing their father. This is why in John 6, the crowd says, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Or if they didn't use the father's name, they often referenced their hometown, which is why you also, when you read the Bible, you'll see it's Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he grew up. One cool note about Nazareth, uh, in late 2020, Professor Ken Dark found what is to, believed to be the childhood home of Jesus. It started when the Church of the Nutrition was discovered. Um, this church was actually dedicated to the upbringing of Christ and seen in a seventh century pilgrim's account. And then in the 19th century, more found manuscripts suggested that there was a dwelling underneath that church that belonged to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Dark explained, we know from written evidence this church was believed to have been built on the side of Jesus's home and the dwelling is preserved in its crypt. And after 13 years of searching uh, using archeology span and history, they actually found the house dated back to the first century, all but guaranteeing that that would be the childhood home of Jesus, which I just thought was pretty cool. Jesus's middle initial isn't H, uh, even though some of you grew up in a house where your parents shouted that. Uh, and the name Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. Because Jesus was Jewish, he, was almost, he almost certainly had Jewish features such as olive skin, brown eyes, and black hair. And scholars actually believe that he was five feet tall or five feet, five inches tall because that was the average height for the adult male at that time. Jesus had a stepfather named Joseph who loved him very much. Joseph came from famous, famous lineage that included Abraham, who's considered the father of Israel, and King David, who slayed Goliath. And Joseph was a carpenter and taught Jesus that trade. In fact, Jesus did carpentry from the time he was 12 to the age of 30. Jesus also had siblings. They were half-siblings. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not the ones who followed him. Um, in fact, they didn't actually believe he was the son of God until he resurrected from the dead. His brother James went on to write the book of James in the Bible. Um, absolutely, if you need a place to start, read James in the Bible. Um, but understand it's coming from someone who didn't believe for a very long time and believed later on in life once he witnessed the resurrection. Uh, according to many scholars, Joseph probably died, his, his stepdad probably died when Jesus was a teenager. This is based on life expectancy of men during that time, and because Jesus is often referred to as Jesus, the son of Mary, which shows that there was a familial change. Um, if you've ever wondered why Jesus had so much empathy for women, uh, you just have to look at his own life. His own mother was a teenage pregnancy out of wedlock, and the law during that time stated that she should have been killed for that. And then at some point, she became a single mother. Right? Jesus, if you read the Bible, loved and cared for women so much, and he pushed for women to be valued outside of cultural norms because it was his own family. He recognized that from his own life. 
Jesus also spoke multiple languages. We know that he spoke Aramaic and Greek. Uh, he probably spoke Latin as well. And we know that he could at least read Hebrew because that's what the law was written in uh, in the Old Testament. Jesus started his earthly ministry when he was about 30 years old with his baptism in the Jordan River. That was the moment that kicked it off. His first miracle was turning water into wine. And while he lived and he taught and he would preach, Jesus said and did some wild things. He said that he alone has the power to forgive people of their sins and put them into a relationship with God. He said that he wants to bring heaven down to earth. He said that God is his father and that he is the son of God. He also miraculously healed people. He brought people back from the dead. He walked on water. And Jesus quickly became and remains to this day the most divisive person to ever walk the planet. What I mean by that is that you and I are forced to make a decision about whether or not we believe he is who he says he is. And that decision can be dividing. And when Jesus was walking around teaching and preaching, he was so divisive that the Roman government who had a military occupation of Jerusalem got nervous. They started to think, what if he starts a revolution? What if he starts a rebellion with the Jewish people? What if he topples our government? So what did they do? They arrested him. Uh, They put him through a rigged trial. They gave him false charges. They tortured him within an inch of his life. And then after that, they nailed him to a cross. They crucified him. Roman order Cicero noted that of all the punishments, crucifixion was the most cruel and most terrifying. The goal was to psychologically destroy someone before they died from any physical wounds. And again, all scholars agree that this is how Jesus actually died. So Jesus was born into the world in the most unassuming way, but his birth was the moment when God came to live with us. And in this mysterious way that I don't have time to get into today, Jesus is both totally and completely human, and he is also totally and completely God at the same time, somehow. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is God in the flesh who entered into humanity to live with us. And from day one until the day he died, his eyes were set on the cross. His sole and primary goal was to die for us. And from the outside looking in, there was actually nothing special about Jesus being crucified, seriously. He was one of hundreds of thousands of people to be killed on a cross in Rome during that time. He was killed just like every other common criminal. At face value, there was actually nothing special about Jesus dying on a cross. But in reality, something incredible was happening. And that's what we see in Jesus's last words. So we're gonna pick up the story today in Luke 23. This is what it says. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Like I said, they put him up on a cross just like a common criminal. And just a few verses earlier, we actually read that Jesus was being mocked by the soldiers and the crowd. There were actually people there watching, like spectators, cheering for his death. And then Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. God, please forgive these people, these people who are physically and emotionally torturing me. Forgive them. There are two crazy things happening when Jesus says that. The first is that even in the height of his pain and suffering and humiliation, Jesus is so focused. His eyes are on the goal, which is forgiveness. He wants to forgive his enemies. He wants to forgive you and me. 
He says, it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't even matter what you do to me. I want you to be forgiven. The second thing is even crazier though, because when Jesus asked God to forgive the crowd, he's asking for his own death. This is the message, this is the theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. The only way for us to be forgiven so that we can be in a relationship with God is if someone pays the necessary price for our sin, our guilt, our shame, our mistakes, and our failure. And the necessary price is death. That's forever. And there are two options. Every single individual who's ever lived on this planet must pay the price for themselves, or there needs to be someone who is big enough and infinite enough to carry all of, the, all of humanity's sin on their back. And the only person big enough and infinite enough to do that is God himself. So he does. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us. So Jesus asks his father to forgive the people who are mocking and torturing him, who are killing him. But the only way that request will be granted is if Jesus stays on the cross until he dies. So he does. Until the very end of his life, regardless of what it costs him, Jesus wants you and me to be forgiven. But why does he want that so bad? Right? What is so important about this? Why do we need forgiveness? Well, that's actually what he says next while hanging on the cross. And remember, there are two other men hanging next to him, and one of them actually speaks up. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what this criminal does is he puts just a little bit of faith in Jesus, right? Just a little bit of belief that Jesus is who he says he is. And he puts a little bit of faith in the very last moment of his life. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. All it took was a little bit of faith. So what does forgiveness do for us? First of all, it means that our life after we die is taken care of. Right? If you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible teaches us that we live in eternity with God after we die in a place that has no more mourning, no more death, no more pain. It's perfection. Right? This is one of the reasons why Jesus wants forgiveness for us so badly, because he cares about our life after we die. The other thing that we see when Jesus responds to this criminal is that Jesus will forgive us even if putting a little bit of faith in him, in him is literally the last thing that we do on this planet. What that means is, this, is if there's anyone in here that's thinking, this Jesus stuff sounds good, but I'm too far gone. Or I'm sure that's great for everyone else, but not for me because I've done too many terrible things in my life. Or there's no way Jesus would forgive me because I am a hopeless cause. If you feel that way, Jesus would say, if I'm willing to forgive that guy, right, that guy that's being executed as a criminal and forgive him when he has minutes to live, which means he doesn't actually have time to prove that he has really changed or prove that he's a decent person or whatever else you wrongly think you have to prove to God. Jesus would say, if I'm going to forgive that guy, it's never too late for you. Jesus died to bring us forgiveness and it is never too late to accept that. After this moment, Jesus looked at his mother, Mary, and his dear friend, John. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. So right after talking to the criminal about paradise, life after death, Jesus shows that he cares very much about life before death. 
Because what Jesus is doing right here is he's actually settling matters in the here and now. Right? He's looking at his mom and he's looking at John. And he says, mom, this is John. John, this is mom. Mom, John is gonna take very good care of you after I die. This is the other reason Jesus wants forgiveness for us so badly. It's because he doesn't just care about where you go when you die. He cares about everything in your life before you die. He cares about your marriage, your kids, your friendships, your job, your joy, and your life in the here and now. And Jesus knows that if any of those things are going to get better in our lives, it's going to be because we have a real relationship with God. And in order to have a real relationship with God, we need to be forgiven. And if we're going to be forgiven, Jesus needs to keep hanging on a cross until he dies. So that's what he does. Jesus wants to give us life after and life before death. After this moment, the end starts to draw near and some people could actually be nailed to crosses and they would survive for days. Um, Jesus couldn't take it that long because of how severely he was tortured and beaten before he was even nailed to the cross. So life was starting to slip from him. And as it does, and I want you to catch this, he says something that I believe is the most human moment and the most powerful thing Jesus said in his lifetime. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And what is happening in this moment is that Jesus who has never sinned, who has never done anything wrong, suddenly and literally he is carrying all of humanity's sin on his shoulders. Everything you have ever done, everything that I have ever done to bring shame and judgment on ourselves is now embodied in Jesus. And because of that, Jesus who spent an eternity in perfect relationship with God is now separated from God because he's actually carrying all of the guilt and judgment that you and I deserve. In fact, this is about the only time in the Bible that I can think of where Jesus, in an interaction with God, doesn't call him dad. He references him as my God. For Jesus, this is a very cold and distant term. There's no relationship there. Because in this moment, God is not dad, God is judge. And he's carrying out the death penalty that you and I deserve. So Jesus is alone for the first time in his life and he shouts out, God, where are you? God, I don't see you. I don't feel you. Where are you? How many times have you prayed that prayer? God, where are you? The cancer came back. God, where are you? The depression, the bills, the family struggles are getting worse. God, where are you? This moment is the reason why I think that God is gracious toward anyone who feels distant from him who feels confused by him or doubts him or is angry with him. I think he's patient with us when we shout out, God, where are you? Because somehow in the mystery of this whole Trinity thing, this is a prayer that God himself has prayed to himself. Right? We have a God who knows the feeling of abandonment. So Jesus is now carrying all of our deserved judgment. He is separated from God for our sake. And then he says two things in his dying breath. He said in John 19, it is finished. In other words, everything I came here to accomplish is complete, right? The plan that's been set in motion since the beginning of time, the rescue mission to save Michael, the rescue mission to save you, the rescue mission to save humanity is finished and there's nothing you can add to it. And then the last thing he says is, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. 
not my God, but Father. Jesus just seconds after crying out, God, where are you? He puts his full trust on display. He's separated from God and he's praying that I don't even know if you can hear this, but I'm about to take my last breath. And when that happens over the next three days, and what happens over the next three days is entirely up to you because I'll be dead. So if I'm going to come back to life, that is going to be something that you are going to have to do for me. And I trust that you are going to do it. With those words, he breathes his last. He does not pass out. He does not pretend. He dies. Like a two-bit criminal, we killed God. We didn't even realize that we did it. And on that day, Jesus chose to make forgiveness possible for people like you and me. But it didn't end there, and it doesn't end there. Those were Jesus' famous last words, but three days later, Jesus takes his famous first breaths. Because three days later, God followed through on his promises, and he proved that everything that happened on the cross was real and forever, and it was finished. And he proved that by bringing Jesus back to life. And this moment is the most important moment in human history. This is the most important moment for Christians who have placed their faith and their hope and their trust in him, the moment when Jesus comes back to life. And it happened quietly. There was no one there to witness the exact moment. It was just a dead Jesus in a sealed up tomb and a father who kept all of his promises. For three days, his tomb is eerily silent, but then there's a moment where the silence is broken by a gasp for air. Jesus' second first breaths. Air rushing through his nostrils and filling his lungs. It's life again and life forever. It was a silence of death in a tomb interrupted by life. And with that, everything changed. Your relationship with God, my relationship with God, God's relationship with his people, our eternities, our day-to-day realities, our faith, our religion, the course of human history. Everything changed with those famous first breaths in that sealed up tomb. And when you put your faith in Jesus, it's a lot like that quiet moment in the sealed up tomb. That's how it happened for most of us who follow him. There wasn't an opening of the heavens and God audibly speaking in angels and trumpets and chariots. Instead, it was this quiet moment when things started to click and Jesus started making sense. It was this moment when the silent dead tombs of our hearts suddenly gasped for air at the thought of who Jesus was, at the thought of forgiveness, at the thought of an eternity without pain and sorrow. We started taking our second first breaths. And ever since that moment, for some of us, it's weeks and others, it's decades, Jesus has been breathing life into the dead tombs of our hearts. And that's because that is who Jesus is and that is what he does for us. And whether you've been following Jesus for years or you are still trying to figure it all out, we are all in desperate need of a breath of new life that Jesus gives us. For some of you, it feels like life right now is holding you underwater. You're trying to catch your breath. You're dying to get get to the surface and gasp for air. You still haven't found what you're looking for. What you're looking for is a breath of new life. What you're looking for is Jesus. Only Jesus can give you the forgiveness that you're longing for. Only Jesus can give you life before and after death. Only Jesus can breathe life into the cold, sealed up tomb that is your heart. Only Jesus can do that. And for some of you, you just need to accept it. And if you are ready for that, 
what we encourage you to do is check the baptism box on your connection card so we can have a conversation about what that looks like, even if it's just a little bit of faith. Next week, we're gonna close out this series. I'm gonna talk about baptism. And there's no better time to take that next step because when you get baptized, when you go under that water and then you are raised out of it, you will be taking your second first breath in this life and you will have found what you are looking for. You might not fully understand it, and that's okay. Nobody fully understands it. You just have to believe it. You just have to have a little bit of faith that Jesus is God's son, sent to die so that we could be forgiven. For 33 years, Jesus lived on the earth with the goal of taking our sins on his shoulders. His goal was to save us. His goal was to rescue us. His goal was to give us life. His goal was forgiveness, knowing that the cost was his own self. That is who Jesus is, and that is what he's done for us. And that breathes life into our cold, dead hearts and gives us new life over and over again. Let's pray. God, we don't, we don't understand. God, we, we can't even fathom why you love us so much. God, why you would send your son um, to earth to live a perfect life, to eventually take the weight of our sin and our shame and our pain and our brokenness on his own shoulders. And God, while we don't understand why you love us that much, uh, why you care about us that much, God, we're so thankful for that. God, we know that we're not worthy of that love, still you give it to us anyway. God, we are so thankful for your son God, we're so thankful that in the pain and the humiliation and the shame that he felt on that cross and those moments when he felt separated from you, God, that he didn't give up on his mission, which was to seek and save us, to offer us forgiveness. So God, I pray this week for everybody in here, whether they've been following you for a long time or still trying to figure it all out, God, that that's what breathes life into our cold, dead hearts this week. God, we need that. We need that breath of new life. God, I pray that that's what we have this week. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.